I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. And we are uh, caught in the middle of the story that we began to look at last week, this account of Stephen. Stephen was one of the seven who, in chapter 6, were chosen to lead the mercy ministry at the Jerusalem church, the ministry of, of feeding uh, a number of widows that were, that were in the midst of that great congregation that had been built up at Jerusalem. And Stephen also, not only did he do that work for the church, but he was going around proclaiming Christ in Jerusalem, and he was also doing great wonders and signs among the people there, and uh, he was uh, attracting a lot of attention for the gospel. Many people came to Christ, but also enemies came. Uh, at least a couple of groups from some of the synagogues in Jerusalem began to dispute with him about the things that he was teaching and preaching. But they were unable to win the argument over him. And since they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, as it tells us in the text, they resort to false accusations of blasphemy. And so they uh, haul him up in front of the council, the Sanhedrin, the the Jerusalem, the, the, the governing body for the Jews. And they make their, their accusations against him. And after they make these accusations, we pick up the account here in chapter 7. And the high priest said, in reference to the accusations, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after, this, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham began the, became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. After the patriarchs jealous of Joseph, uh, and the patriarchs jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, 
until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they, returned to, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, 
whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. It's a, it's a long passage that uh, we just read. Stephen was a long-winded uh, preacher, I suppose, in some ways. So uh, in the words of uh, Jerry Reed in his song uh, for Smokey and the Bandit, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So I'm going to jump right in. Uh, there are two things, uh, two divisions I would make in this sermon. First, I want to sum up for you the accusations that were made against Stephen, and then I want to break down the defense that he makes very briefly so that we can understand what all this is about. What is Stephen rambling on about giving us this long history lesson uh, from Abraham uh, up to the present day? We see the charges made against Stephen among the crowds back in, in verse uh, 11, the previous, verse, previous chapter. We have, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. We have heard him say blasphemy against Moses and God. They're throwing around the word blasphemy uh, in order to get the crowd outraged because they can't win the argument over Stephen. Stephen knows, uh, he knows the scriptures and he's apparently out arguing these religious leaders from these synagogues. And verse 13 tells us that the, char- the charges that were brought to the Sanhedrin uh, these Jewish uh, leaders who governed religious affairs for the Jews. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So the charges against Stephen, these accusations that are made uh, uh, about him, uh, was that he was preaching that Jesus made the temple obsolete And he made the law of Moses obsolete. Those two things. He made the temple obsolete and the law of Moses obsolete. And you can see that the accusers accusers style these charges in inflammatory language. He's going to destroy this temple. He's going to destroy this place. Uh, He's changing the customs that Moses delivered to us, the customs that we've had for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. They want to alarm the religious leaders And they are successful, as we see at the end of the chapter. These charges are a distortion of what Stephen had been preaching. Because, in one sense, they are correct. Certainly, Jesus most definitely taught that he made both the temple and the law of Moses obsolete. Now, in regard to the accusation concerning the temple... Jesus did, uh, he claimed to replace the temple, uh, and this claim was one of the accusations that led to his crucifixion. 
destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, Jesus said. And when he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. So anybody could walk right into the, to the center where you went, where the, where the high priest went once a year to meet with God to atone for the sins uh, of the people. But now the way was opened to go into the very presence of God, and it was symbolic uh, that the temple was no longer necessary. The sacrificial system, no longer necessary, because the one sufficient full sacrifice of the Son of God was made, and the way to have fellowship with God was opened up through His sacrifice and through His righteousness. Now in regard to the accusation concerning the law, when we talk about the law of Moses, uh, the Old Testament law, we can talk about it in three categories. First, there's the moral law, and that's described for us in the Ten Commandments, uh, as we, we know full well. And then we can talk about the ceremonial law, which consists of all that the law proscribed in reference to the sacrificial system, you know, how, how all the different sacrifices you made and offerings that were made and uh, the laws that would make one clean, the ceremonial washings and so forth, and circumcision, which is mentioned here uh, in the passage that we read. That's the ceremonial law. And then there was the civil law. Some of the laws in the Old Testament are civil laws. They are for the theocracy of Israel. Uh, theocracy uh, is a uh, government of a state by immediate divine guidance or by officials who are regarded as divinely guided. And that was true of Israel back in the day. But no longer in, in, uh, in Stephen's day or in our day. Now, when we think about those three categories of law, the moral law is not obsolete. It is never obsolete. The Ten Commandments uh, are fully enforced today as they have always been. But the civil law only governed the nation of Israel while it existed as a theocracy. So the civil law disappeared along with Israel. And biblical Israel has nothing really to do with uh, Israel, the nation of Israel today. It's, that nation is not a theocracy like it was in the Old Testament. What Jesus was talking about was the ceremonial law. Specifically, the ceremonial law was no longer enforced because he fulfilled it. He was the high priest. He was the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He uh, is the temple. He is all those, all those things in the Old Testament were there to point to Him. He is the fulfillment of it all. So what Jesus was teaching was that all those uh, ceremonial laws for being cleansed and washing, they were merely there to point to Him. He is the way to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be washed. And it's not just an outward washing. What Jesus brings is an inward washing, a change of heart, a circumcision not of the body, but a circumcision of the heart where the uncleanness is cut away. Jesus is the only one who can make us clean. He fulfills all the ceremonial laws, so the temple is no longer needed. You know, no longer need to make those sacrifices. That's what Stephen was preaching. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our cleanness before God. Jesus had fulfilled the law, all three categories of the law. He, he completely kept the Ten Commandments all his life. He fulfilled all that righteousness. He never broke the civil laws of Israel. 
He kept them perfectly, and he fulfilled in his person the ceremonial law. So he didn't come to throw away the law. He came to fulfill it, and that's exactly what he did. That's why they were coming against Stephen with these accusations, that he's wanting to get rid of the temple, and he's changing the ceremonies, the laws that God had given to us through Moses. So, yes, they have a point, but they're distorting it. They don't realize uh, that this is the way that God has provided, that those previous things pointed to the reality who was Jesus Christ. Now, Stephen gives his very long defense, and I'll sum it up quickly for you. He gives us a long recounting of the history of Israel, and it seems like he's not really answering the question that the high priest has put to him. Are these charges true? Do you teach that the temple is unnecessary, that the law of God is unnecessary? And then he, he goes back to the very beginning when, when Abraham is called out of Haran. And uh, the basic, uh, well, he highlights through his speech, Abraham, he talks about Joseph, he talks about Moses and Solomon. But the basic argument that he's giving through recounting all this history is that God is a living God. He's not restrained or confined to a building. His glory presence is available without traveling to a building in Jerusalem. God's not in a box. He's on the move, and we see that. Abraham, he met God in Ur of the Chaldees in Haran. Those places were not in Israel. In fact, he never owned in his life any part of the promised land. That land was promised to him, but he, he never received it. And then we get through uh, in verses uh, 9 through 19, that was verses 2 through 8, covers Abraham. 9 through 19 covers Joseph up to the Exodus. Joseph was sold into slavery, into a pagan land. He was sent to Egypt ultimately, and there God met with him. God was with him in that land. So God, again, not confined to Israel. And then Moses, in the wilderness wanderings, verse 20 through 43, God comes to Moses on holy ground. It's outside of Palestine. It's in the Sinai Peninsula. He was in Midian, uh, across on the eastern side of, of the Sinai Peninsula, not even close to Israel. God met with him. He was on holy ground there. Again, God is not confined to Israel. And then verses 44 through 50 covers the history of the tabernacle. Moses was given a pattern to build this tabernacle so that they could worship God in the desert on their wanderings. And they used that up until the time of Solomon, when God, uh, when Solomon built uh, a house for God. But even after that, God warned, and he quotes Isaiah 66, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, there God, in, in Isaiah 66, God forcefully says that he's not confined to Israel and that his face is available without going to the temple, especially now that the Messiah has come. So there is his defense of the accusations concerning the temple. God's not, you can't put God in a box and say he's, he's right there and we've got him right here. He's everywhere. He rules over it all. Now as for the charges concerning the law, 
In verse 39, he makes the case that their forefathers were not able to keep the law, but worshipped other idols, and this eventually led to their exile in Babylon several hundred years later. From the very beginning, from the beginnings of the nation, Israel has failed to obey the law. It happened under Aaron when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law, when they made the golden calf a low light in the history of Israel, and it continued on through their history until eventually they were kicked out of their land with the exile to Babylon. And Stephen goes on to say that every prophet and leader in the entire history of Israel was persecuted by their own people. Joseph, Moses, David, and the prophets. So, don't talk to me, Stephen says, about keeping the law. You don't keep it. Your fathers didn't keep it. Uh, you can't keep it. You're incapable of keep it, keeping it. And he turns the tables and lays the devastating charge of verses 51 to 53 down on them. He brings the whole argument down to one point and he lays it directly on the heads of his hearers. You stiff-necked people. He's recalling some language from the Old Testament. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Yeah, you talk about the law as being delivered by angels, but you do not keep it. He says they're uncircumcised in their hearts. They might keep all these religious laws. They might be circumcised themselves. They might go through all these rituals to be clean, but they're not clean in their hearts. They need cleansing, but they have rejected and killed the very one who came to cleanse them and fulfill the law for them. This enrages them when they hear these words from Stephen, this accusation, and they kill yet another prophet, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Their hearts are revealed in their murderous actions as they put him to death, stone him in this brutal, brutal way. Now, quickly, what does this have to do with us? Now, we are far removed from this debate about the temple and the law and uh, the requirements of ceremonial washings and blood sacrifices and circumcision. Because the bottom line of what they believed was this. They had God in a box, and as long as they followed a certain set of rules, then they had favor with God. They had the heritage, and God had blessed them by revealing himself to their forefathers. As far as they were concerned, they were God's chosen people. And they had the temple there, to prove it. The gospel message Stephen preached was a threat to those beliefs. The box they had God in the temple was obsolete. The rules they were following to get favor with God had never actually changed their uncircumcised, unclean hearts. Their great forefathers had no great record of respect for God's ways and God's words, and neither do they. And here's where we find that we are no different than them. I'm going to bet that a lot of you think this way. You think that there is a God. You believe in God. And you think you are a pretty good person, that you're, you're moral 
And, and you are. And you think because you are a pretty good person that God will make sure you are happy and successful in your life. And you, you think uh, you are a nice moral person who goes to church on Sunday, but God doesn't really affect your life during the week unless you have a problem. And if you have a problem, then you pray and ask others to pray so that you can get back to the pursuit of your happy and successful life. God owes you for being a pretty good person. And you think that because you are a pretty good person that you will go to heaven when you die. Well, if you think that way and behave that way, then you're not a Christian. You're a follower of what is called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a long word, but it's uh, what one, uh, one researcher has coined to describe what most people believe in the United States. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's become the civil religion of Americans. It's the religion of Oprah and of people like Joel Osteen, where everybody's nice and kind and wants to be treated fairly and you know the pursuit of your happy life is is all that matters and whatever you decide makes you happy is what you should be able to do and you should allow everybody to do whatever they think will make them happy and you need to be a good moral person and it's not very specific to Christianity it's the morality that's taught by most of the world's religions. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's moralistic because it is about inculcating a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central, live to, central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. It's therapeutic because it's all about providing therapeutic benefits for its adherent. Happiness, success, as opposed to being about things like Repentance from sin. You know, Joel Osteen never talks about sin. Or of keeping the Sabbath or God's moral law. Or, or of living as a servant of a sovereign divine. Or of steadfastly saying prayers. One, you know, praying on a regular basis, not just when you need God to bail you out. It's, uh, it's different than of faithfully observing high holy days of it's, it's not having anything to do with uh, of building character through suffering. These are marks of Christianity, but moralistic therapeutic deism is all about having a comfortable, happy, successful life, whatever I define that as. And then it's deism, because it's a belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, who created the world, yes, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's daily affairs, especially those affairs in which we would not like to have God involved, like your money or your sex life. As long as God doesn't uh, deal with those things or mess with those things, that's fine. He can do what he wants. Moralistic, moralistic therapeutic deism has become the dominant civil religion and it's infecting American Christianity. 
our beliefs are being uh, uh, compromised and watered down to where there's, the gospel is, has disappeared. The need for a sacrifice for sin. There's no sin and God is just there to give you what you want. That's, that's, Jesus is not necessary. But here's the truth. The truth is you are not a pretty good person. You are uncircumcised in your heart. You are a sinner. And you've got to recognize that. You know, somebody said it last week, uh, Sunday night. They, they said, uh, you know, they went to church, they did a lot of things, but it was not until later that they really realized that they were a sinner. We've got to recognize, like, when Nathan the prophet confronted King David with his sin, he said, you are the man. You're the one. You're the one that's, that's done these great sins. We've got, to, we've got to come to that place where we say, yes, it's me. I am the one. See, you cannot save yourself. Your good works are not changing your heart. They are not releasing you from the power of sin. You know, trying to do good works to save yourself is like nailing apples to a tree. You know, if you have a, an apple tree that won't produce good fruit, and you think, well, I'm just going to go buy some apples at the store and I'm going to nail those good apples on there. Well, that looked good for a week or so, but then the, what's going to happen? The fruit's going to rot. Trying to save yourself by good works is nailing apples to the tree. And you know it's true because you've tried it. How many people have already failed to keep their New Year's resolutions? You've tried to, to, to amend your life, you've tried to change, you've nailed an apple to the tree, but in a couple of weeks, a couple of months... Those changes have gone by the board. No more. You cannot transform your own life by trying harder. And you cannot manipulate God into favoring you. Especially not by our so-called morality. If you think I'm good, therefore God should bless me and, and give me the success that I want, then that's really, that's really paganism. You know, let's sacrifice to the gods of agriculture so that we can have a good harvest this year. Let's, uh, let's do something nice for God so that He'll bless me and give me what I want. So you're, just, you're actually just trying to manipulate God. And that makes you God, not God God. When we come to God, we say, God, you're the God, and I'm not. What would you have me to do? So you can't manipulate God. You can't put Him in a box and bring Him out when you want Him. That's not Christianity. We need God's grace, His favor. We need something outside of ourselves to save us. And Christ has provided that. He's provided that through His life, through His death, through His resurrection. We attain that, not by our own works, but by recognizing that we can't fix what's wrong with us even though everybody thinks we're pretty good persons, we can't fix it. We can't change ourselves. We can't circumcise our hearts. We need Christ to do that, and He's provided a way for us to do that. We must turn to Him. You know, like we just sang, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked, 
come to thee for dress. You know, like the emperor's new clothes. You know, he didn't realize he was naked. We need to recognize we're naked. And we need, we need some robes of righteousness that we cannot weave ourselves. Christ has promised them for us if we come to him. Helpless, look to thee for grace. You know, you're tired of the, of being the hamster on the wheel, trying, trying, trying to change, trying to do good works, trying to feel like you have God's favor. Get off the wheel. Turn to Christ. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Let's pray together.